one of your pastors, Jason, uh, oh, he's so cool, but uh, he, always, he always cracks me up. One of our conversations was uh, we were talking about our sabbaticals, upcoming sabbaticals, and he asked me first, what would you want to do? And I said, oh, I would want to go to like uh, Napa Valley and one restaurant after another and have a splendid time. And then I asked him, what would you do? And he said, well, there's this place in Israel where you go from one village to another, about a 10-mile walk, and you meditate on the Word of God. And I was like, <laughs> you should have gone first. That was me- that was, I thought that was messed up. But anyway, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's look at the text. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 28 to um, 13, 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 uh, to 13, 1 through 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page uh, 1197. Let me read this for us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God, will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is the word of the Lord. So today I wanna just share with you uh, one main idea under the term Philadelphia. So if you walk away with anything, um, just um, Philadelphia, right? And do you notice this passage? The, by the way, Hebrews is like a long sermon. It's a really long sermon. And chapter 13 is the application section, just to give you context, okay? And so the author at this point says, having said what I have said, now it's time for us to offer to God acceptable worship, worship that's pleasing to him, right? If you've grown up in the church, um, and if, you're, if you have any contact with the evangelical subculture, right, this is what you're thinking immediately. When I was growing up, uh, my dad would always say, you need to become the next Billy Graham, right? Like, he was big back then. Or if you ever went to a missions conference, uh, you would hear slogans like, let's do great things for a great God. And somehow, all roads during that time led to becoming a missionary in an underground church in China. Like, if you grew up in the church, you know what I mean. And so, there's this general idea that living for God means doing grandiose things, right? And, you know, our culture has, uh, like, exasperated that situation. Like, social media, have you, have you noticed that you can't be normal anymore? I mean, you can't have a normal job. You need to start the next Fortune 500 company that IPOs. And, you know, God forbid you're a stay-at-home parent. You know, like, you're wasting your life, apparently. 
And so we live in this culture that believes, ah, yes, let's do great things for a great God, and this is what uh, the Bible calls us to do. But I want to suggest to you that the Bible doesn't teach that at all. And this is really a helpful thought to consider that, you know, God, it's sort of like this. I notice some of you are parents. I'm a parent of three. Have you ever noticed this with your kids? Sometimes they offer to do big things like, I'll make dinner for us tonight. Or, and um, as a parent, as a father, you say, you know what, just listen to mom. Because <laughs> if mom's not happy, <laughs> no one's going to be happy, okay? And, you know, the point that we're trying to convey to our kids is, listen, we don't need you to do these big things. Just do what we ask. That's it. And I sometimes think that that's what God is saying to us. Instead of saying, hey, God, you know, I want to rock the world for Jesus, right? Instead, just say, is this what you've called me to do? And just consider this, right? By engaging in ordinary obedience, that is, just do what God wants you to do, <clears throat> God is the one that accomplishes the extraordinary. You see, it's not you trying to be extraordinary but just do what God has told us to do, and God will accomplish the extraordinary. And the ordinary thing I want to challenge you today to consider is this, familial love or brotherly love, i.e. Philadelphia. So three points somewhat quickly. Um, number one, the posture that we are called to have, the posture. Number two, the practice. And then finally, number three, the power. Those three simple points, okay? The posture the practice, and then the power. So the author begins in chapter 13, verse 1, by saying this, let brotherly love continue. In other words, let Philadelphia continue. Philadelphia is a compound term. Uh, phileo means love. Adelphos means brother. So Philadelphia means brotherly love. Uh, that is familial love, right? And you know why this is very striking? <clears throat> you don't get to choose family. You know what I mean, right? Thanksgiving's around the corner, and some of you are excited. Some of you are dutiful, right? Because you don't choose your mom and dad. You don't choose your siblings. You know that um, famous uh, movie from way back when, Lion King, where, um, you know, Scar's always... Uh, uh, causing trouble, and Zazu says to uh, Mufasa, there's one in every family, my family has two. You're probably saying my family has three, four, five, right? But regardless, you love your family. Isn't that true? You love them not because they're lovable, not because they inspire you, right? Not because um, you find them just pleasant, you love them because they're family, period, period. And um, that's what Jesus is saying to us where he says, you know, the kind of love that should mark believers, especially when you're members of a local church, is familial love, that you love one another in that way. And this is not sentimentality. This is like, gospel reality. Do you remember that famous scene? Jesus is ministering to crowds, and then one of his disciples comes to him and says, hey, your mom 
and your brothers are outside. Do you remember Jesus' famous response? Oh, my family? Who's my family? This is my family. He who does the will of God. Let me tell you, if I ever said that, my mom would go, whoopsh, whoopsh, what? <laughs> what woman carried you in the womb? Like, I mean, like, it's outrageous, except it's true. And you see, friends, like, part of living in the West is that our faith is very individualistic. It's very individualistic, right? I've used this illustration before, and it's offended some people. But when you're a guest speaker, that's okay. <laughs> so I apologize. But I want you to think about this. Some of you may have grown up with this poem called Footprints. Okay, so if it's your favorite thing, just, you know, uh, don't listen to this illustration. But it's a very interesting poem. So basically, it works like this. And we had it, like, in our home. And it says, I'm paraphrasing it. I'm not doing justice to the eloquence. But basically, I wake up in a dream. And behold, Jesus and I are along the beach. And there are two sets of footprints. Oh, right? It's beautiful. And we're walking together. But then all of a sudden, I look back, and I notice that, you know, for an extended period, there was only one set of footprints. And, uh, and I realized that that was when my life was most difficult. And so I asked the Lord Jesus, why did you leave me in my time of greatest need? And then Jesus says, during that time, it's my child when I carried you. And we're like, oh, that's very warm, except it's very unbiblical. Because, you see, this is how the poem would have gone. I woke up one day in a dream, and there was Jesus, and there were countless other people, and there were thousands of footprints, right? And we all walked together because Jesus is, yes, he's saving me, but salvation is what? Salvation is adoption. He brings us into his family, right? And during those hardest moments, right, I didn't see my footprints, but Jesus carried me, and how did he carry me? He carried me through his family. See, friends, like, there's no way you can read the Bible and not see that when God saves you, he brings you into his family, and I, I want to suggest just a challenge to you very quickly that no matter who you are, you become the air you breathe. You really do. And probably your faith is more individualistic than you realize. That is, you're probably more concerned about loving God, the vertical, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Love my people. And so that's number one. It's, it's that simple, but I want to suggest this to you. If and when you practice it, familial love has more power than any program. Like, I'm not against programs, but I'm saying that as a church, if strangers or, you know, newcomers come and they detect familial love, they're going to be weirded out and attracted to it because it's so hard to find. So that's number one. What should be our posture? It's literally when you see one another, you think family, right? It's not like, oh, this is my real family and this is my church family. It's this is my family. It's hard, right? Very, very difficult. <clears throat> so number two, because the author is such a good pastor, 
he outlines four practices, four practices. And I'm just going to go through them very quickly. Because we can talk about familial love, but what does it mean? So he outlines four things. And let me go through them very quickly. Number one is this. He says, do not fail to entertain the stranger. And he's talking about uh, the instance when the angels visited Abraham, and then Abraham makes a feast for them. This is familial one, number one. This is the practice. This is what it looks like. It means that you are regularly inviting strangers to your house. Specifically, okay, let me be specific, believers that are strange to you. That is, believers that you don't quite gel with. You know what I'm talking about, right? And by the way, this is why small group ministry is great, because, right, you're usually with people you would never be around, right? Because, you see, to love and invite people that you like, your friends, right? This is what the Bible says. Even like, even unbelievers do that. But you see, familial love is seeing that person at church, and you're like, hmm, oh, different. And conversation is so difficult. You, you know what I mean, right? And it's saying, you know what? I don't want to actually have that person. I don't want to have a meal with that person. Maybe coffee, but not a meal, right? And the author is saying to live out family love is that you're regularly <clears throat> looking around and um, you're thinking, I'm going to invite him, I'm going to invite her, I'm going to invite them over, and it's going to be miserable, but I'm going to do it. You see, it's that, that's what it means, right? Let me uh, throw this out very quickly. <clears throat> People talk about diversity. Diversity is great until you have it, right? Because when people are very different, right, uh, and you get together, it's a little awkward. And it's, uh, it is. And there are a lot of awkward moments because people will say things not offensively, but they just, you know, it's different. So let me tell you, uh, like, something that has happened quite a bit over the past 10 years. Uh, so I'll have, like, my wife and I will invite, let's say, uh, someone that doesn't quite look like us or tick like us. Uh, let's say you have um, a Caucasian older woman. You know what comment I've heard so many times over the years? It goes like this. Oh, Pastor Paul, your English is very good. <laughs> I love that comment. Because I always say, well, I practice every day, right? <laughs> Like, I really have no idea how to respond to it, right? And, she, and you know, and by the way, I, I think when these comments are made, they're really made, and you know, that's fine. I think people uh, mean well. But that's just a facetious illustration of, like, how, you see, being the family of God means regularly having meals with people that are just different from you. When is the last time you have entered a season where you're regularly inviting believers that are just strange to you? That's number one. You notice, man, the author is such a good pastor. He's, not, he's saying, let's not talk about sentimentality. Yes, we're family, but we're never going to have meals together. He says, number one, if you believe this, one of the marks of your church is that you should regularly be inviting one another to have meals together. That's number one. Number two, the author says you should visit those in prison as if you yourself were in prison. Now, 
Yeah, if you take this literally, it can be referring to prison ministry. But it can also mean this. Maybe some of you feel this way. Uh, at least you know people that feel this way. Maybe they are not literally in prison, but they are in the prison of their souls. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like people who are in prison because of like, depression, people that are in prison because of anxiety, you know, financial concerns, professional life. You know, people are in prison. And let me share with you a principle that's really worth keeping in mind. <clears throat> hurt people, right? Hurt people. This is a great statement. Let me say this one more time. Hurt people, that is people that are hurting, they tend to hurt people. And this is why if you're a normal person, right, you generally want to stay away from hurting people. Like you might want to check, like check in through an email, but generally it makes sense, right, that hurt people will hurt people. And so you don't want to get close. You don't want to identify. Because when you do that, the chances of getting hurt go up a lot. One of the persons that knows this really well is a pastor's wife. Pastor's wife. And uh, we, have, uh, we have two sons and one daughter. <laughs> I remember I asked my wife, I was like, how do you feel if our boys became pastors? And she's like, well, you know, I don't know if that's a good fit for them, but you know, like, you have to follow the will of God. And I said, what if our daughter married a pastor? She's like, heck no. <laughs> She's like, I said, what happened to the will of God? She goes, none of that nonsense. <laughs> and this is why she was getting at that, because as she has done ministry with me uh, for 10 years, right, over, well, 20 years, uh, she has directly seen that as we try to invest in people's lives, you pour, 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 and often people will bite, bite, bite. And so one of the questions you want to ask is, what does familial love mean? It means drawing close to people that are hurting, knowing that you probably will get hurt along the way. Now, just as an aside, C.S. Lewis, he has this really helpful quote. Some of you might be sitting there and you're like, oh, no, I don't want my heart to be broken. I don't want to be hurt. And C.S. Lewis, he has this famous quote. He says, yeah, well, you can go and live in the safety of suburbia, right? And basically keep your heart stored away. But he says the problem is, yes, your heart won't break, right? Because it will become unbreakable, right? You will lose your humanity because you're not entering into brokenness. That's number two. Number three is this. <clears throat> There's this awkward section in this passage where he suddenly talks about the marriage bed. And he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral. What does this have to do with Philadelphia? I think this is what it has to do with, at the very least. There are lots of implications, but at least consider this. See, part of being family means you're going to go deep and have difficult questions and conversations with one another. Because ask yourself this question. If you read this individualistically, you think, okay, I need to be pure. No bad stuff, right? But remember, this is given to the church. So it really begs this interesting question. How in the world would you know what's going on in my private life? Do you see like that? Like how do you live this out unless we're so deeply connected and 
were having very difficult conversations. You see? There's this, there's this familiar love. You notice it's not sentimental. It's like this. <clears throat> this is like a cool, this is like a fashionable thing now when, um, you know, being Asian, I look young. This is the way Asians work. They look young. They never go through this phase of looking like middle age, and they, they look decrepitly old. But it's just like, that's the way Asians work. So believe it or not, I'm much older than most people think. But uh, at least when I was growing up, when you dated, you didn't go on vacations together, but that's like a fashionable thing now. With, it's very popular among dating couples. So when we have couples date at our church, and I get wind that they're going to go on a vacation together. I always ask them this question. I say, wait, you're going on vacation together? They're like, uh-huh. I said, but you're not married. They're like, uh-huh. I was like, all right. I don't recommend it, but are you getting one or two hotel rooms? And they're like, Pastor Paul, why are you asking? And I say, what do you think? <laughs> and we have difficult conversations because this is how the narrative usually plays out. I said, all right, I don't recommend it. Can't go beyond the Bible, but dating didn't exist, so I don't know how to... <laughs> but when you come back, I'm going to point, point, pointedly ask you a question. And you see... Um, one of my close friends, he has this really good statement. He says, you know, if you believe in the church as family, this is a great statement. He says, you learn to embrace the awkward. You learn to ask these hard questions. You see, friends, that's what it means to be family in Christ, where you don't say, well, we don't talk about that because that's very private. But it means even this. We're like married couples. This is, this is awkward, right? Embrace the awkward. We are even able to say to one another, hey, when is the last time you have been intimate as a married couple? And you're able to say, well, six months, 12 months? That's probably not good for the marriage. You see, that's what the author means when he says Philadelphia. It means like going deep, right? Some of you are thinking, man, I thought the first application was hard, <laughs> right? You're like, this is really, like, this is hard. And then last, this is what the author says. He says, let your life be free from the love of money. And you might be wondering, what does that have to do with familial love? Like, and I want to say it has everything to do with it. Because you live in Northern Virginia, you know this. You know that this is a what? Transient area. You know that. And maybe your church has experienced that. The kind of turnover our church experiences every year, it's rough. And in large part, it's a transient area. Why? Because of this thing called the cost of living, right? Uh, I grew up in New York City. We didn't do any extracurricular. If you wanted to learn how to play basketball, you went to the park, and you learned how to play. But my wife and I, we never really done extracurricular, so we recently looked at some programs, and we were like, what? <laughs> Learn how to cook, you know, bake goods, $1,000 a week? We were like, 
thank God for YouTube. <laughs> like, kids, you want to learn how to cook? Here you go, right? And uh, I'm very sympathetic to the cost of living. I really am. I really am. And you know, one of the popular places that our, tr- our members have moved to is everyone moves to North Carolina for some reason. And, and have you experienced that? Like, the cost of living there is much cheaper and so forth. But you see, friends, you can never become family without longevity. This is what I mean. You see, talk all you want about family. It takes years to develop that kind of relationship. Think about everything we talked about, right? Meaning, three years is nothing, nothing. To be family requires decades. And how does this have to do with the uh, like love of money? This is what it means. And this is hard. It means that when you make decisions, the cost of living is not first and foremost, but your conviction that Jesus is making a family. You see, and by the way, when you do this, it changes the culture of your church. It changes the culture of your church. And let me just share with you, like one of the most amazing things about uh, my experience as like the pastor for my church is this. We have many people a lot like you, very capable, very educated. They have young families, working professionals, and they're always getting job offers somewhere else. And you know, especially with COVID now, you can work remotely anywhere you want. But even recently, one of our deacons, he, um, he received a fantastic job offer. Basically, they said, well, double your pay. Double your pay, and you can work from anywhere. So he was thinking about going to North Carolina. Why? Double pay, half the cost of living, makes perfect sense. Like a townhouse here, you could buy like a six-bedroom there. You know, like a house, right? And so he thought about it, but he decided to stay. He decided to stay. And so people asked him, why are you staying? (laughs) It's crazy. And he said, because of the family. We need to build a family. You see, and that's why friends, like I do want to just challenge you to consider this, right? If you want to practice Philadelphia, it requires longevity. And for you to have longevity together, right? Money is important, but it can't be the most important. Right? So those four things. And again, notice what a great pastor the author of Hebrews is. He's saying we can't just talk about familial love. It literally means inviting believers that are strange to you and eating together. It means entering into the lives of hurting people, knowing you will be hurt along the way. It means embracing the awkward by asking penetrating questions. Remember Jesus said to that woman, oh, where's your husband? And she goes, oh, he's not here. And she said, what does Jesus say? He doesn't go like, okay. He says, yeah, because you've had so many. I mean, like, <laughs> like, no tact, right? And then number four, like, it means you, your lifestyle, cost of living could be so much better elsewhere but you're staying in what? Expensive Arlington. That's what it means, which leads to our last point, the power. So let's ask this question. Who in their right mind would do this? Let's just ask that question, right? Like Philadelphia is great until you actually think about what it is. Who would want to have a relationship with strangers, like a deep relationship? 
Ask yourself, who would draw near to hurting people? Who in his right mind would embrace the awkward? Who would become poor so that what? Others could become rich. And that's why everything we've been thinking about for the past 20, 30 minutes, right, is what? Ultimately, it's what? About Jesus. Just think about this with me for a moment. And this is why the author says, let us offer to God. The Greek there is more like fitting worship. And this is like, this is the key. When I think about this, when I think about, oh, man, I look at my calendar, I'm like, oh, that meal, it's going to be a work meal. Got to make sure there's good wine at that meal. <laughs> or when I think about this person where, you know, as a pastor, sometimes you have that member that says, I'm going to leave this church. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, there's a part of me that's thinking that. Uh, and, or, you know, when you have to have difficult conversations or when, you know, Living here is costly. That's when we think about the gospel. And we have to ask ourselves this question. Where would you and I be? But literally, think about this. Where would you be if Jesus said, eh, I don't want to, eh, I'm going to keep, keep at a distance. What does Jesus say instead? He says, I'm going to come, not just for the stranger, but for the enemy. And I'm going to bring her into the family of God. I'm going to come and make her wounds, all her hurt, mine, so that I can give her my righteousness and completion. I'm going to not only call people to sexual purity, but I'm going to give them my purity by dying on the cross, right? I'm literally going to become poor. I mean, even in the incarnation, it's one thing to be incarnated into what? the Kardashian family. I mean, that's nice, right? But Jesus incarnates into poverty. He surrenders all the glories of heaven so that why? By his poverty, you might become rich. And so this is why, friends, right? I just want to close by challenging you to consider all of this points to Jesus. All of this points to who he is and what he has done. He is the one who has embodied Philadelphia, and he is the one that now comes to you and me, and he says, go and do likewise, okay? Let's pray together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we, um, we think of you because you are Philadelphia. You are marked by familial love. You came, you died for all our sins, so that we might be adopted into the family of God. And now you call us as sons and daughters of God to practice the same. So I pray for Portugal. Um, I know that this is a transient area. I know that it's very easy just to connect with people who tick like us, who look like us. It's very tempting given we're just so tired as it is to connect with hurting people, all of these things. And yeah, financial security, wanting all these things, it, those are very understandable. And so this is why we pray that as we close this worship, turn our eyes to Jesus. Help us really to 
believe this is what he's done for me. So the most fitting worship would, for me, would be for me to go and try to do likewise. I pray that your spirit would convict us in at least one concrete way uh, for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray.